0: I think there's a sense in which this exhortation from Peter to conduct ourselves with fear throughout the time of our exile, it might strike you as a little bit odd at first glance. First of all, you have to remember who these people were. As I've mentioned already today, they were a people that were beginning to experience the pressures of of persecution, and were being marginalized for their faith. And what they were worried about is that the threats that they heard were going to eventually turn into real repercussions for their Christianity. Perhaps financial persecution, you know, they can't get the jobs that they used to get, and are marginalized financially in their economy, or even all the way to the extreme of physical persecution. That's what these people were going through. Now, Peter was a man who had experienced all of these things in his own life. If you read the book of Acts, what you discover is that Peter, by the time he wrote this letter, had already experienced being marginalized by his society that embraced Judaism, and had also been imprisoned multiple times for the faith, and sometimes those imprisonments turned into physical hostility. And the reason that I mention that is because Peter was a man who understood what it was like to have emotions that are connected to a threat upon your life because of your Christianity. And as you or I might imagine today, one of those emotions would be fear, worry, or concern. Now Peter comes along to this group of beleaguered Christians People who are fearful about what the future holds in their lives. You could almost imagine it like patients coming to a doctor with an issue. And their issue, their problem, is that they are afraid for their future. They are afraid about what's happening in their lives. They are afraid that they are being marginalized for their faith. And what does Dr. Peter prescribe for these Christians in this passage? He says, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. In other words, it's like this. They are fearing, and Dr. Peter says, you know what you need? You need to fear even more. And so in a sense, that's why this is confusing to us. What is Peter saying when he tells us that we should conduct our lives, our exile, with fear? Another reason that this might be slightly confusing to us is because some of us right now today we have some bible verses rattling around in our minds some of you might be thinking of first john 4 verse 18 where john says there is no fear in love for perfect love casts out fear isn't that a beautiful verse from john you know he's saying when god gets a hold of your life You're worried, you're concerned, you have fear of God, you're afraid of God, but you get the gospel and when you understand perfectly or more completely the love of God for you, it drives away your fear, your paranoia, the fright that you have over and about God. Or take this one from Paul in Romans chapter eight. He said, you did not receive the spirit of fear or excuse me, of slavery, to fall back into fear. So when Peter comes along and says, no, I actually want you to live a life of fear, are these different biblical authors in contradiction of one another? Well, when John and Paul talk about the kind of fear that I just quoted to you, the kind of questions or or worries that would come up are that you would ask questions like, am I even saved? You know, I believed in Jesus. I've trusted in Jesus. I have a very marked moment in my life of surrendering myself to him. I believed in the gospel, but maybe I'm not in. Or you might say, am I accepted by God? Does he really love me? Does he really care about me? Or am I doing enough? for God. Maybe I haven't done enough good things in God's sight to be accepted by him. These are the kinds of fears that Paul and John have told us the gospel should drive out. In other words, that kind of fear is paranoia about God, fright of God, or apprehension around God. And the gospel drives out all of those feelings about the Lord. No, Peter is speaking of a different aspect of fear. He's talking about a respect for God, a reverence for God, an awe of who God is. And listen to me now, I think he's also talking about a respect for and a fear, a fright of what sin could do to us if we engaged in it fully. Many believers Don't have this perspective, but when you do, you say things like, I want to be holy like my Father in heaven. I don't want anything unclean whatsoever in my life because I know what it could do to me and what it could do to others through me. And I'm careful with temptation because I know that sin could destroy me. When you have this kind of reverence and respect for God in your heart, you'll say, with the Apostle Paul, like he said in Philippians chapter two, that you want to work out your own salvation with fear and with trembling. Maybe a way to illustrate these two sides of fear, the wrong side and the right side, is to remind you of the story of David and Goliath. Don't you love the story of David and Goliath? You know, the the ultimate underdog moment. And really, the story is beautiful because for 40 days, this gigantic warrior named Goliath went out and challenged the armies of Israel. And really what Goliath was challenging them to was a thing called representative warfare. And what that meant was, instead of having a whole army attack a whole other army, they would just send out one warrior from each army and they would battle, and whoever won the battle would be the victor over the entire army, representative warfare. And so Goliath, the ultimate Philistine warrior went out every single day for 40 days and said give me a man crying out to the armies of Israel and I always imagine the armies of Israel kind of looking around at each other like hey do you, do you hear something I don't hear anything did, did you hear something I, I, I don't know did I, I he might be saying something but I don't know what it was that he said because everyone in Israel was afraid of this giant what did they have They had a worry, a concern, a fear, an apprehension, a fright of Goliath. Then came along David. After 40 days, he arrives and he hears the words of Goliath. Same words, but David's interpretation of it was different because he had a fear that was higher than Goliath, a fear of the Lord. And so when he heard Goliath's words, he asked the question, who is this Philistine that is defying the armies of the living God. Now, it's not that David was delusional. It's not that he looked at Goliath and thought, you know, he's like nine and a half feet tall. He weighs like 450 pounds. He could throw my body weight 50 yards, but me 5'2", 130 pounds dripping wet, I'm pretty sure I could take him. No, it wasn't that David was delusional about Goliath. It's that he saw the Lord. He had a fear that was higher than Goliath because he revered God. And he felt that somebody needed to do something because God's name was being disrespected in that moment. This is the fear of the Lord. Another way to maybe illustrate the lack of the fear of the Lord is to talk about an event in the life of Peter, the man who wrote the letter that we're studying this morning. You guys remember the infamous episode where the night that Jesus was betrayed, he looked at his disciples after announcing his betrayer and told them, all of you tonight will deny me. And you remember Peter's classic response. He said, Lord, I will never deny you. He looked into his heart and he thought, I'm not susceptible to to that temptation. There's no way I could commit that particular sin. And Jesus said, surely tonight before the rooster crows twice you will have denied me three times. And Peter doubled down on his commitment to his own ability and he said, even if all of them deny you, I will not deny you. It's just not possible, it's not in my nature, it's not in my DNA. They went to the garden, Jesus, went into three hours of prayer and he took Peter and James and John along with him. Each hour Jesus would come and check in on these three disciples that he'd invited into hours of prayer and found them asleep. And you might remember he did not address all three, he addressed Peter. He said to Peter, he said, could you not watch with me for one hour? The spirit is willing but the flesh is weak watch and pray lest you enter into temptation. You see, Peter, because he had a lack of fear of himself and what he was capable of, he did not pray. If he'd had a fear of the Lord and a fear of what sin could do to his life, he would have been on his knees that very night saying, oh God, have mercy upon me. My Lord has just told me that I have the capability within to deny him and I pray that it would not be so. Forgive that part of my heart that would be prone to doing such a thing and deliver my life. But because he had no fear, he was not driven to his knees. Brothers and sisters, the fear of the Lord, the Bible says, is the beginning of wisdom. It is a must in the Christian life. And when it is present, it produces beautiful things. I don't know what your favorite church is in the New Testament. My favorite church is the church in Ephesus. Anybody, that's your favorite church? Do you guys even have a favorite? You need to get a favorite church in the New Testament this week. That's your assignment. Find a favorite church in the New Testament. And if you come back next week and you're like, I found it, Nate. It's a Church of Laodicea. You need to go back and read a little bit more. They were a terrible church. Find a good church. The church in Ephesus is my favorite church. And Paul spent a couple of years there, it tells us in the book of Acts, preaching and teaching and building up disciples. And after two years, this amazing thing happened. There was this demonic activity that God gave them power over, and everybody saw it. And Luke describes what happened to the church in that moment. It says, and the fear of the Lord fell upon them all. The whole church filled with the fear of the Lord. Now, immediately after they experienced the fear of the Lord, what happened was all these new Christians who in their old lives before they'd known Jesus had been engaged in something that Luke calls the magic arts or sorcery, They took their magic books that Luke calculated as being worth over a million dollars in our modern coinage. And they took their magic books and they burnt them in a massive bonfire for everyone to see. They didn't take the books and sell them on eBay, but they burnt them before God and before their community. And with that, the word of the Lord, Luke says, began to spread. It was a moment of conviction. It was a moment of consecration. It was a moment where, as the fear of God was upon them, they said, we want to belong to you wholeheartedly. Kind of reminds me of the moment when I was in high school, and we were at a Christian camp, and a friend of mine who wasn't doing all that well with the Lord, he had this moment where God is speaking to him, chasing him down, and he's like, man, this is it. I'm all in for Jesus. And what was his big moment? Well, he took his red hot chili peppers tape and he took it to the bonfire and you know this was before we knew that burning plastic was bad for the environment he threw his tape into the bonfire and it was kind of like his way of saying like i am all in for the lord at this moment the fear of the lord it produces beautiful things you find a congregation filled with dependence upon god you find worship that is passionate not stirred up by anything external but internal because there's a respect and fire for God within and a revived community. So at this point, we might all be saying to ourselves, all right, this sounds great, the fear of the Lord. I should have more of that, sounds good? And we could kind of conclude the teaching and we could all pack up and we could go get in our cars and we could say to ourselves, you know what, I, sh- I really should have more of that fear of the Lord than Nate was talking about today. That'd be really nice. I don't know how to get it. I don't know where it comes from. But I really want to have more of that fear of the Lord. Well, praise God, the Bible tells us how to actually get it. And I want to show you three things before I let you go today. The first one is found right there in verse 17. He said, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. He talks about God as our father who judges impartially. The first thing I want you to see about cultivating this healthy fear of the Lord is that you must begin to see God or continue to see God as your father slash judge, as your father slash judge. Now, I realize that many of us have had difficulties in even seeing God as our father. You know, we live in a time where many of us, we've had bad fathers, or absent fathers, or neglectful fathers, or harmful fathers. And so a lot of times, Christians have to go through the work of reorienting their minds around the biblical definition of what a father is and look into God's word and see that God is the ultimate father and the rest of us are just playing at it. We're just trying to be imitators of who he is. He's the ultimate and the true father. But some of you might be sitting here today going, okay, Nate, I've done a lot of work to get my mind around the idea of God is my father and now here you come saying God is my father slash judge thanks a lot you know that kind of messes everything all up but here's the reality when you see God as not only your father but also as your judge it cultivates a healthy fear of the Lord You see, we cannot be so preoccupied with God as Father that we neglect the truth that he is our ultimate judge. In fact, when Jesus taught us to pray, what did he say? He said, pray like this, our Father in heaven. So there's the Father portion, but then he said, hallowed be your name. What's the first thing that we want to have happen? We want God's name to be hallowed, honored, esteemed, revered. That's the concept. And part of wanting or seeing God as your father judge is that you merely want to please him. You want your life to be something that is a blessing to him. This is, in fact, or in reality, what a love relationship is. You know, I was thinking the other day, Christina and I were about to celebrate Yeah, It's a while from now, so you don't need to clap or anything, but next January, we'll be celebrating our 20th wedding anniversary. And the other day, stop clapping. That's my sister trying to clap right now. But I remember this last week, I was just kind of praying, and I was thinking about being married, and I was just kind of talking to the Lord about it. And I was like, Lord, you know, thank you so much for putting me with Christina, because Uh, I knew that she was a great fit for me uh, when we got married, but I barely knew who she was. You know, we we were just kids and we hardly knew each other at all. But as the years have ticked by, I've seen your wisdom in placing us together. She's the perfect companion for me and I hope that I can be the perfect companion uh, for her. And I I actually told her this and she's like, yeah, I had no idea who you were either. You know, it was like a step of faith that we were taking Uh, together. And the reality is, you know, I I love my wife, but the truth is, is that in addition to that love, it's almost because of that love, there's also a fear that's attached to that relationship. I know if she's out and about doing whatever she's doing, if she's up in Trader Joe's and some random dude in the third aisle says something mean to her, it's going to affect her for about five minutes. But me, What I do, my actions, they could be very harmful to her. They could really hurt her. And so there's a fear in my heart because I don't want to bring that about in her life. I love her and I care for her. And so in a sense, we would say this about God, shouldn't we? I love the Lord and I want him to be blessed and pleased with my life. But in another way, God is unlike any of our human relationships because God really is the ultimate judge over every one of our lives. And you can't say that about any person that God has put in your life. He is the ultimate judge. Now, when I say that, what I don't mean is that one day, if you're covered by the blood of Jesus, you'll stand before God and he will look at you and try to make a decision about whether you're in or out of the kingdom. Listen, the good news is if you believed in Jesus, the blood of Christ is transferred to you. His righteousness is deposited into your account so you stand before God with the righteousness of Christ. And Jesus is like in. He's as in as you could possibly be in. So if you're in Christ, you are in. But the Bible teaches that every one of us will give an account for the way that we lived our lives after we came to Christ in our lives here on earth. Paul says it this way in 2 Corinthians 5, 10. He said, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This knowledge that I will stand before the Lord or you will stand before the Lord to give an account of the way that you lived your life after you came to Christ This knowledge should create a reverence for the Lord, a fear of the Lord in our everyday practical lives. I've talked to people before who have said things to me like, well, as long as I get in, I really don't care what God's report is about my life here on earth because I know heaven will be a wonderful place, his kingdom will be a wonderful place, and I know that every tear will be wiped away, and so I won't be sad in that eternal state, so I really don't care what he says. And I just look at people like that and say, what does that say of your love for God? If God is saying, this is the kind of life that I want for you, and I will assess your life at the sum total of your life, Yet you don't care about what I say of your life. What does it say about your love for the Lord? But I will also remind you, the judgment of God is not just an eternal event, but it is an event that we experience in the here and now. And we experience it in the form of the Father's discipline upon our lives. Now, full disclosure this morning, I'm a kid, I was a kid who, when I was growing up in our household, uh, we got spanked. That was part of our discipline process. And, and I will admit just like I did at the 930 service that I got spanked less than my sister got spanked. And there she is right there. She got spanked a little bit more than me. She was a rebellious little child. But I got spanked. And I never had the moment where after you know getting spanked with a wooden spoon On my bare bottom, I thought to myself, all right, that was enjoyable. And I gotta remember what I did to make this happen in my life because I'm gonna do this again in the future. No, in my mind it was, I don't wanna have to go through that again, so whatever I did to get this, I don't wanna do that anymore. You see, we don't like discipline when it comes into our lives. And so the fear of the Lord helps us say, how am I supposed to live so that I can kind of beat discipline to the punch? I don't want to have to endure it, so I can just look into his word, see the life that he's designed for me, and live that life. Because a good and faithful parent will discipline their children. They don't want their kids running out into traffic, harming themselves, so they'll discipline them so that they learn self-control and learn when they say, no, stop, they'll stop. So our father, he wants us to see him not just as a father without judgment, but our father judge. Or maybe I could say it like this. He's not just our great-grandfather in the sky who lets us get away with anything. He's our father who is trying to discipline us for holiness. But a second thing I want you to see about how to develop this fear in your life comes from verse 18. Please look at your Bibles again. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers. Okay, so a second way that Peter tells us to cultivate healthy fear is to understand the futility of other options. You've got to understand the futility of Of other options. Now here he says that we were ransomed from something. And the way they understood ransom is so much fuller than we, the way we understand it. When they came to church, they had people in their church who were currently slaves. They had people in their church who had never been enslaved. And they had people in their church who had previously been slaves, but had worked off their slavery and had been ransomed from their slavery, And whenever they were ransomed from their slavery, what they would do is they would go to the temple of a local deity, and they would offer an offering and give a financial gift to this deity. And really, technically, what happened was not that they were set free from their slavery to their master. For all intents and purposes, they were. But technically... Their slavery was transferred from an earthly master to this divinity, to this false god. So that now, even though they were free, what they considered themselves was as servants of this deity that they had offered a gift or a sacrifice to. Now in this passage, Peter tells us what or who we used to be enslaved to. Look at it there in verse 18. He says, we used to be enslaved to the feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. The feudal ways inherited from our forefathers. Now it's beautiful. When you come to Jesus, maybe you've seen this before. Somebody that's adopted some radical ideology, some radical view of the world. And they come to Jesus and maybe they were on the route towards being a neo-Nazi or something. Or maybe they'd embraced kind of the most radical versions of feminism or something like that. And they come to Jesus and there's this reckoning and they become set free of the ideology that they'd previously embraced. That's what Peter's talking about here. Now, it might be uh, moderate kinds of things, such as things that you got from your parents or things that you got from your family structure or something like that or your community. Or it could be the philosophies that your entire society has subsumed and they don't even know it. And if you think about it today, our, our culture, our society is walking around living off of uh, the doctrines, the philosophies, the ideas of people like Nietzsche or Marx or Darwin and, or Freud But nobody's reading these guys. It's just that their ideas have so penetrated the world that we live in that we're just living out their worldview. But Jesus comes into your life and he rescues you from that old way of life. Peter calls it a futile path, a futile old way of living. But the reality is, is that humanity tries over and over and over again to live off these feudal ways. You know, if your car gets near empty at the in the gas gauge, what do you do? We all go to the gas station and we buy some gas, you know? And it's getting so expensive these days. I am like the crankiest old man when I have to fill up my gas tank, you know? I, I've got a one and a half mile commute to the church, so it takes me about a month to empty my gas tank, but Christina, with three teenagers that have life going on, it's like every four and a half days, it feels like we're filling up this gas tank. And when I'm doing it, I'm just so bitter about it, you know, it's just, I'm, I'm so upset. But what you know what I've never thought of? I've never thought to myself, you know, this is getting really expensive, this gasoline. The prices just keep going up, maybe what I'll try is uh, nobody ever told me whether this thing would work on water or not, so I might just put in my garden hose, turn on the faucet, and fill up the tank. I'd never do that because I know that it would destroy (laughs) this machine that I want to keep running as long as possible. But this is the way of humanity. John tells us in 1 John that the way of the world is the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Or to put that another way, the desire to feel the desire to have, or the desire to be something. And we keep putting these same things into our lives over and over and over again, thinking that they'll lead us to satisfaction. But here, Peter is telling us, no, you've been set free from the futile ways that you've inherited from your forefathers like Solomon, who came before us, who experimented with anything and everything he could in his search of satisfaction, had all the money in the world, all the relationships in the world, all the power in the world. He could do whatever he wanted, but the book of Ecclesiastes shows us a man that, that was given over to emptiness until he says in Ecclesiastes 12, 13, all has been heard, and the conclusion is this, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. We've been set free from our feudal ways that we've inherited from our fathers. I'm a a child of the 90s, so I've always got 90s jams, you know, circulating through my mind. And I remember one that came out, Sheryl Crow, if it makes you happy, was her lyric. If it makes you happy, it can't be that bad. I don't know why that lyric came into my mind the other day. And the first thought that I honestly had is I thought, Cheryl, have you ever heard of Cheetos? You know, it makes me happy to eat a whole bag of Cheetos, but that's not good for me. And if I live that way day after day after day, it would destroy me. And this is an innocuous, innocent little thing. Could you consider the things that I could do that might bring me temporary happiness, but would destroy me, destroy others, destroy my church. No, I've been set free. We've been set free from the futile ways of thinking that our forefathers have tried to give to us. But let me give you one last thing before I let you get out of here that helps us develop a fear of the Lord. It's in the remaining verses, verse 18 through verse 21. Peter has told us that we've been ransomed, In this sentence, this long sentence that we don't even have the time to unpack today, Peter is celebrating one beautiful thing, the blood of Jesus. And if you want to cultivate a healthy fear of the Lord, you must appreciate the blood of Christ. You must appreciate the blood of Christ. And in this little passage, why was Peter so enamored by Jesus' blood? First of all, he says in verse 18, he's enamored with it because it's so valuable, more precious than gold or silver. Even the most precious earthly possessions are nothing compared to the blood of Jesus. He also would celebrate the blood because it speaks to him and to us of Jesus' incarnation. In his eternal state before he came, Jesus had no human blood coursing through human veins, but because he has blood, it means that he incarnated for us. Peter also speaks of Jesus' blood because to him it speaks of Jesus' death. Jesus' blood did not remain in his veins, but was poured out for you and for me, and he died. But not only that, Peter celebrates the blood of Jesus because he says that Jesus was like a lamb without blemish. In those days, they offered sacrifices to God, and the lamb had to have no blemish. What that meant was the lamb could not, after getting caught in a fence and cutting itself and scarring itself, falling in a ditch, breaking its leg, and forever having a gnarled leg, that lamb had a blemish. It had accumulated in life. It could not be offered to God. And Jesus, his blood was pure in the sense that he never sinned. He never did anything that brought a blemish or guilt into his life. But Peter also celebrates the blood of Jesus because it was like that of a lamb without spot. They also could not offer to God a sacrificial lamb that was born with a defect. And Peter knew that Jesus was perfect in the nature that he was born with and born in. Sinless not only in action, but sinless in nature itself. Peter also celebrated the blood of Jesus because he says in verse 20 that it was foreknown before the foundation of the world. In other words, Peter knew that God knew before creation of the cross of Christ. And it so blessed Peter's heart that this was the foreknown plan of God. And then finally, in verse 21, Peter celebrates that it's through the blood that you and me can become believers in God so that our faith and hope are in God. That's Peter's way of reminding us that we could not make our way to the Father without the blood of Jesus. In Peter's mind, without the blood, there's no Christianity. Without the cross of Christ, we have nothing, and he celebrates it. It is valuable to Peter, perfect to Peter, substitutionary for Peter, shed according to the plan of God and the very thing that brings us into God's family. And if you appreciate the blood of Jesus like Peter did, if you see the enormous cost that God paid, the price that God paid to attain you, it just impacts you. You don't mess around when you learn of what the blood of Jesus is, and what the blood of Jesus does, because the price is so high. I don't know if you're like me at all, but my relationship with a rental car is a little bit different than my relationship with my own vehicles. When I buy a new car, my kids put their feet up on the back of the seat. I say, hey, get your feet down. They don't listen a lot of times, but that's what I tell them. I tell them to clean up after themselves, but man, when I get a rental car, it's just, yeah, kick your feet up, it's fine. The dirtier, the better. That means we got our money's worth when we rented this thing. You're not gonna catch me washing or waxing my rental car because I haven't paid the ultimate price. You see, brothers and sisters, God has paid the ultimate price to possess you and to possess me. And when you understand this, it develops a fear within you, a reverence within you for what God has done. There's actually a theological misreading that many people have succumbed to, even in recent days, of the book of Exodus. The idea that some think Exodus is about is that Exodus is about God liberating a group of people, God setting a group of people free. But Moses, when he went to Pharaoh, did not say, God says... Set these people free. No, what Moses said to Pharaoh was, thus says the Lord, God says, set my people free that they may come out and serve me. You see, in God's mind, he wasn't setting them free to just be free. He was setting them free so that they could have a new, better, holier, purer, and good master over their lives. They were being transferred in the mind of God from Pharaoh to the God of the universe. And this is a good transfer. And one that we as brothers and sisters in Christ should submit to because the blood of Jesus has purchased us. You know when they anointed or ordained the Old Testament priests, you know what they did? They took the blood from the sacrifice and they put it on the right earlobe, the right thumb, and the right big toe of every brand new priest. Kind of random sounding, but you know what it said? It said, God has purchased this man's intake organs. The things he hears, consumes, sees, tastes, they are owned by the living God. And the things that this man does with his hands, the work of his fingers, The stuff that he touches, the things he takes on, they are owned as well because God has purchased them by the blood. And where this man goes, where his feet take him, they have been purchased by the blood of the sacrifice. And brothers and sisters, if you've surrendered your life to Jesus, if you believed on Christ, his blood has bought you so that you, every part of you could belong completely and wholly, devotedly to him. So we're called to be a people who live our life of exile in fear. We should cultivate this by seeing God as our father judge, by understanding and knowing that the old life is futile, and by recognizing the great cost For us, the blood of Jesus.